recording. Well, good evening. Get this set up here. My name's Preston Insensberger. I don't know all of you, but I'm glad to be here tonight to, to share the word with you. And uh, we have a good um, text tonight to look at. Um, let me open us in a word of prayer and we will get started. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for this uh, time that we get to share in your word, to break your word open. And I pray that you just illumine our hearts and our minds tonight to... Uh, to take in, Lord, all that this is. Lord, to take in uh, who you are, the power that you carry uh, to save, the power that you carry to get rid of evil. And I, I'm thankful for uh, this time tonight. I pray that you will uh, bring those uh, that don't know you tonight to draw close to you. And those that do know you, Lord, would uh, bask in your glory with thanksgiving and um, we just raise this to you tonight in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, if you have your Bible, you can turn in uh, the book of Matthew. I think you know you've been there for several weeks, probably. A year. <laughs> A year today. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 12. And we're going to be right in the center of Matthew 12, 22 through 29. Okay. True story. I grew up in Denton, right up here. You know where that is? Mm-hmm. Back around 1988, I was driving a school bus as my job while I was going to college at the University of North Texas. Well, one afternoon, I, before I started my route, I got a phone call from my neighbor. And he said, man, you got to come home quick. Um, there's a problem. The police are everywhere. Um, they're all over the, the property. They're going through all the garages, the sheds, all these rent houses that are all over this property. And he said that the landlord had been been robbed and there had been shots fired. There was a, you know, I, I ran home, I got home and I saw all this going on. There was a helicopter overhead going. So, I mean, this was a real manhunt, like a scene in a movie, okay? And my landlord, let me give you that background, his name was Mr. Owens. Okay, he was well known. He was a well-liked man who owned a local gas station, had a little towing company on the side. And over the years, he had accumulated a lot of rental houses. Okay, he was a hardworking man. He was a strong man by today's standards, right? But what happened was Mr. Owens had come home for lunch, which was his regular routine. And he was, got surprised because there was two men waiting in the house. And they took him at gunpoint. And they took him and they let him, had him lead him around the house to show him all the valuables, particularly the safe. There was a vault. And somehow they had got word that, that he had a lot of cash in that vault. Because back in that day, we kept more cash on hand than we do today. Okay? And so they, they showed him that, showed him some possessions. And then they proceeded to tie him up on his bed with a phone cord. We didn't have cell phones yet. 
You're supposed to laugh about that one. <laughs> we didn't have cell phones in. So they tied him up on the bed with phone cords, okay? So there he was, and after showing him the vault, he, he got up later after he thought they left. But as he got out in the hall, he had grabbed one of his guns. He had a lot of guns in his house that he had hidden. And he grabs one of his guns, and he's walking out into the center hallway, and he steps out, and he, it's a long hallway down a real ranch-style house. I mean, long as that door down there. And he thought they were gone. So he starts down that hall. Well, there's a guy that's still in the house. And he's in the kitchen, which is down there. And he comes across. And Mr. Owens didn't see him first. The guy saw him first. Takes shots at him all over the place. Because I saw the place after. And he was a horrible shot. <laughs> but he happened to catch Mr. Owens on the hip. And Mr. Owens was going down as the story was told and he hit the wall and he was sliding down and as that thief was running out that door, he took a shot at that guy and he hit him right in the buttocks. <laughs> okay? So the manhunt went on that night and into the evening. But eventually this thief gave himself up that night. The pain was so severe from the gunshot he couldn't stand it anymore, and he, can't, he gave himself up. So end of the story was he didn't get anything for all that. Mr. Owens lived, and he was fine. Everything was okay. It was a thankful situation. You know, as we, we consider a question that's in the text tonight, it kind of comes out like this. It says, how can anyone plunder a strong man's house if one is not able to bind the strong man? So in this story... You kind of are seeing a comparison, so you may be drawing a logical conclusion. Okay? But in this story that I just shared, this is literally true, but in the spiritual realm, what hope do we have against the forces of darkness? So before we launch into our passage for tonight, it will be helpful for us to look at the setting and a little bit of background. Matthew's Gospel is written by a Jew to Jews about a Jew. Now this is important because the main players in the cast of this tonight in this parable are all Jewish. We have the demon-possessed man. We have the crowds. We have the Pharisees. And we have Jesus. And we have His disciples, although they're not directly mentioned in this passage. They are in... We do know that they're actually there. And it's well documented that this account, while Jesus was ministering in the region of Galilee, particularly in the city of Capernaum, where Jesus was staying most of his time, though not that far from his hometown in Nazareth. Now this passage is one of many accounts. I'm sorry? Oh, we're in, okay, I haven't got to a verse yet, but we're in Matthew 12, and we're going to be in verse 22 starting when we get there. Good question. <laughs> The passage is one of, of many accounts that Matthew documents Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. Now, what's different this time? Well, it's not certain. But what we do know is that when he does things, he does them in his own time. They're always the right time. And perhaps on this time is for the greatest impact. Now, it's very important to remember the overall theme of Matthew. You guys know this, don't you? What is the theme of Matthew? Jesus is king. That's right. Keep that in mind. It's going to be important through this because this is one of the 
They should all point to this through Matthew, but this particular passage is really going to elevate that theme. Okay, Matthew is continually revealing and exalting Jesus as the long-awaited king, the Messiah. And as we go through this passage, there are two important questions I want you to keep in your mind. Okay, You may want to write these down if you can't remember them. The first one is, who is this man? Who is this man? And the second question is, and to what is the extent and the source of this man's power? What is the extent and the source of this man's power? And it's important to note that this passage tonight breaks into two parts. So if you're looking at your Bible, you'll see them. You've got the part that's in the black ink. This is the narrative part, verses 22 through 24. And that's going to primarily deal with the question of the king's identity. Okay? The red part, as you know, a lot of people will say that's Jesus talking a lot of times, right? Well, this the red part is, and that's where our, our kind of our parable and Jesus' rebuke is going to start. And Jesus' response is going to be in the form of a parable, in which you probably know parable is something that's common when he responds to Pharisees and to the crowds. So just a word on parables. Okay. R.C. Sproul gives us some helpful insight, and I think this is very helpful for us. Although the term parable can have a broad range of meanings, Jesus' parables are his distinctive teaching uh, through brief comparisons. They usually have one central point or idea, and most of Jesus' parables are clear, but they also contain a depth of meaning that only one with a right relationship to Jesus can comprehend. It is only to the other disciples that Jesus gives the, the interpretation of the parables. So, for example, the parable of the sower and the parable of the tares in Matthew 13. That's coming up probably in a couple of weeks for y'all. The ungodly miss the deeper meaning because of their lack of a proper relationship with God. And God has darkened their thoughts and their hearts. We, we know this because Romans 1.21 says that this clearly for even though they knew God, uh, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So let's read our text for tonight. Again, let's pick it up. Matthew 12, 23 through 29. Then the demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man can't be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then, then he will plunder his house? 
So our theme tonight for this passage is Jesus is the strong man. Jesus is the strong man. So now, as you said, let's pick it up in verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. Now clearly, this is not the first demon-possessed man that Jesus has dealt with or healed. And up to this point, there's been a number of people healed. It could be in the hundreds, it could be in the thousands. And the people are coming because of the spread of the news of the miracles. And they're coming from every direction in this region. And I think Matt showed a map the other day up here of the region of Galilee. And you remember, from north, south, east, west, in that whole region, they were coming to see him. And some were following and some were waiting. So consider these important facts about this demon-possessed man. Okay, and I'm going to try to say this word. It's a Greek word called... Daimonizomai. Daimonizomai. Meaning he is under the power of a demon. This man is controlled by a demon. The demon has full power over everything he does. But he's also blind and mute. Now here we're talking about total blindness, not partial blindness. Okay, this is important. This is meaning he cannot see anything. But it's more than that. He does not see light. He does not sense the color black. Literally sees nothing. He's mute. means he's unable to speak. Meaning he's lacking the power of speech. His mind doesn't give him the words to say. So he has been led to Jesus. And it says Jesus healed him. You know, this healing is overwhelmingly miraculous. He's cured. But it's, it's more than that when you think about it. This is an irreversible healing. He is not going to revert, revert back by any degree whatsoever. And this is evidenced by, as it says, it says so that the mute man spoke and saw. Now, with power, of full power of speech, able to declare his mind and I've read this number, numerous times and I'm continually speechless in all of God's power on display. And you should be too when you see, hear this. Jesus heals him as it says in verse 23. It says, all the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? You know, as I mentioned earlier, this crowd is mainly Jewish and it's a growing and it's a coming and going, a, a bustling multitude of people and and they've likely seen Jesus' miracles in other places as they continue to follow and gather around. And it first states that they were amazed. Now they're hearing and seeing what's, what's happening, but it's still, it's hard to believe. And that in itself should be interesting. Can you remember an event in your life that you saw, yet it just didn't seem like it had, was happening? I mean, I remember one vividly, and I think some of us older people remember this. But you guys have probably historically know it, and you probably know what I'm thinking. But you remember 9-11? You heard of this? 9-11. When the towers, the planes hit the towers, and the towers fell. And I remember watching it that day live, and it's like, just couldn't believe that's happening, to watch those two towers fall. 
Well, that event has forever changed how everyone in the world travels around the world still today. So seeing is believing, yet they're not making that conclusion in their mind. They, they see these miracles, but which is evidenced by what they say next. They say, this cannot be the son of David, can he? So there's disbelief. These Jewish crowds are continually trying to determine if Jesus was truly the son of David. You see, these miracles were verifiable. But the person of Jesus was not what they expected. He's a stumbling block. Here's partly why. And with the help of the Blue Letter Commentary, this is a, a, a great summary. You, you must understand this when we speak of Jews, okay? The Jews were, were looking for the return of a triumphant Messiah, one of David's descendants, a king like David. The Jews were expecting a kingdom to come of the greatest happiness. It would be like a, a continual state of happiness. Their expectation relied principally on the prophecies of David, who had declared it to be the purpose of God that after four vast, four vast and mighty kingdoms had succeeded one another, and the last of them shown itself hostile to the people of God at length by its depotism. Depotism is ruled by absolute authority that they should finally be broken and the empire of the world pass over forever to the holy people of God, which God through the Messiah would set up. Raising the dead to life again and renovating earth and heaven and in this kingdom they would now rule forever over all the nations of the world. Now this kingdom was called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the Messiah. And in this sense, and I say this again, in this sense, you must, you, you must understand these terms in the utterances of the Jews and in the disciples of Jesus when observing the conversations of the Jews with Jesus. This man cannot be the son of David, can he? The implication of this question is not only to the Jews, but to everyone in this room, to everyone in the world. Who is this man? And the Pharisees, well, they were nearby. They were when the crowd was raising this question. And here's what they had to say in verse 24. It says, But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. You know, here this verse begins with a grammatical uh, position of opposition. With the word but, it is an adversative, what's called an adversative particle, if you know grammar. I don't, but I learned that. Uh, but it's, a, it's like an adversarial reply, basically. Meaning what is about to be said is in opposition to the previous statement. So this man cannot be the son of God, can he? And the Pharisees immediately voice their opposition statement. The Pharisees were basically the religious leaders of the Jews. Now, a couple of questions come up. Why are the Pharisees opposed to Jesus? Aren't they on the same team? Well, they were expert interpreters of Jewish law, most of them lawyers. The Apostle Paul confessed that he was a devout Pharisee who led a life in strict obedience to the law, including with the Torah and also the Jewish, the associated Jewish traditions. If you're interested in that, you can always read Acts 20, 26.5 and you can read Philippians 3.5. We're not going to go there tonight. And this kind of knowledge produced arrogant pride 
Therefore, they grew to despise Jesus because they perceived him as a threat to their vocation. And they loved the praise of men. Something Jesus constantly rebuked them for. And this animosity was therefore deep-seated. This man cast out demons by, only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Here the Pharisees sinfully ascribe of a power of healing and casting out demons to Satan. Beelzebul, by Greek definition, is a transliteration of a Hebrew or Aramaic name of the prince of demons. You know, this name originated from one of Israel's oldest enemies, the Philistines. In the Old Testament, it said that they had, they had intentionally distorted that name to a word called Baal Zebub. Instead of Zebul, it was Zebub. Changed the meaning on the end of it. It said the meaning was Lord of Flies. And this was the God of Ekron, which is a city in Philistia. R.C. Sproul writes that the Pharisees deliberately associated the power and work of Jesus, who was full of the Holy Spirit, with the work of Satan. This is to equate supreme spiritual good with supreme spiritual evil. Now, this brings us to the end of the narrative portion of the passage. And now we're going to look at Jesus' response. And as Jesus always does, as I said, He speaks in the form of parables to the Pharisees and the crowds which he's first going to begin here with what's called a general truism. This is when it's something he's going to say that's truth that should be obviously, uh, it should be obvious, generally speaking. Then he's going to follow this truism with three arguments. He's going to be dismantling their faulty logic and their hypocrisy. So general truism, and then we're going to have three arguments, Okay. Let's begin with the general truism. In verse 25, And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is, itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. So to start with, Jesus knew their thoughts, which implies a couple possible scenarios. One being that the Pharisees spoke the accusation to themselves. Or, Maybe they were a distance away in the crowd, out of range of hearing because of the crowd. But in either case, Jesus knows what they either said or what they thought. He maintained in his presence as a man his omniscience, that attribute of omniscience. He still knows everyone's thoughts from afar. I want you to consider these three verses, but I want you specifically to, to look at the last one. Psalm 94.11 says, The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are a mere breath, that they are futile. Psalm 139.2 says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought from afar off. But listen to this one. Job 11.11 For he knows false men, and he sees iniquity without investigating. So to be precise, he is aware and he understands their thoughts and motives. Now let's look for a minute at uh, the first line in verse 25. It says that any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Now in the context of these times, a kingdom implies that there must be a king. A kingdom is in high risk when there exist divisions and factions forming among the leadership 
or in the people. And this creates a dangerous vulnerability for hostile enemies to attack and plunder the city and the people to totally ruin it. The Old Testament is full of kingdoms that are rising and falling, being completely wiped out, as it says laid waste. And when it says laid waste, that means that it usually will no longer exist. And in the same way, in the second part of verse 25, Jesus gives the more, which is a more life apical truth for our general understanding. And he says, and in any city or house divided against itself, it will not stand. Now, the truism applies from the top down. From the great, great nations that are kingdoms to cities down to the little kingdoms of our homes. Divorce in a family is a result of a house divided. If a dad and mom are not walking in agreement in the aspects of marriage, division can easily sneak in. A rebellious child can be a source of division in a family. As he or she continually feeds desires that are self-indulging, that will have an effect on you and how you relate to your family. Maybe that is a question you need to ask yourself. Am I letting any specific desire influence me in how I obey my parents and how I treat my brothers and sisters and others? These little divisions can begin to add up and begin to affect every tier of the kingdoms above them. You know, we're seeing this on many fronts in our world today, in our country, in our cities, in our, in our homes, and especially in our schools. Now, the point of this truism is that when there's division, things fall apart. Jesus never wastes words. Here, his reference to kingdom and laid waste are references to a deeper meaning of this general truth that we will see momentarily. But I want you to note, what Jesus has in mind here is what I said earlier. The Pharisees deliberately, deliberately associated the power and the work of Jesus, who is full of the Holy Spirit, with the work of Satan, equating supreme spiritual good with supreme spiritual evil. Two opposing kingdoms are clearly in view. Now, Jesus begins to first to dismantle this faulty logic of the Pharisees based on this truistic statement. Now, this is the first argument. Verse 26. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Well, two problems exist. First, Satan would be divided against himself. It's the illogical notion that Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons, would cast out his own demons who are, who are executing his evil works. We have to remember, this is an utter antithesis to God. He exists to do evil all the time. Satan is a liar, it says in the Bible, and a father of lies. Jesus said of him in John 8, 44, that he was a murderer from the beginning and he do, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. Secondly, because of this truism that we just covered, this sort of division could cause a self-destructive effect to Satan's kingdom and all his evil plans. So it's utterly absurd, utterly absurd. 
And not only is their, their accusation absurd, it fails to be applied rightly to themselves first. Let's look at the second argument, beginning in the first line of verse 27. If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, well, by whom do your sons cast them out? Now, this is a clear indication that there are others within the ranks and followers of the Pharisees attempting to carry out the casting out of demons, which is, in this time, it was referred to as an exorcism. Now, how do we know that? Well, other than historians, we have the words of Scripture as proof. Consider the significance of these passages. Mark 9.38 says that the disciples reporting to Jesus, they said, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Well, that's kind of obvious. Well, Acts 19, 11 through 16, Luke writes, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits were, were went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, Oh, we, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Well, also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. And it said, And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was, he leaped on them, overpowered them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. But worst of all would be to hear this. Matthew 7, 22. This was a new connection for me. I didn't see this before, but Matthew 7, 22. Exorc and let me say this. Exorcism is not evidence of salvation. Okay? It's not evidence of salvation. Jesus speaking, he said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, these exorcists were referred to as sons because it was a common expression to identify disciples and followers. Um, and, and these exorcists were affiliated with the, Philistine, with the Pharisees. Therefore, Jesus makes a clear distinction that they are essentially disciples of the Pharisees, exposing their hypocrisy. John MacArthur Commentary says this very well. He says, Jesus pointed out the Pharisees' extreme prejudice by showing that they approved the exorcisms attempted by the sons who were part of their religious establishment. They would never have claimed that these activities were ungodly, much less satanic. Yet, when Jesus not only cast out every sort of demon, but also healed every sort of disease, they accused him of being in the league with the devil. You know, the sin of hypocrisy always brings a snare. If your pride keeps you from, from confessing your sins, you end up having to hold on to your position. And that always 
it, that's always ends up in suppressing what you know is true. Now this is made clear in the last line, verse 27. And it says, for this reason, they will be your judges. You see, the Pharisees are put in this awkward position of silence by Jesus' question. By whom do your sons cast them out? Well, obviously they cannot say Satan, for that would bring condemnation on those that are sons and on themselves as the religious leaders. And if they said by the power of God, well, then they're contradicting themselves in what they're accusing Jesus of. So you see the argument. So here we are at a place and I want to let's clarify where we are up to now. Before we get into this third argument. We have said that the first one was that for Jesus has now rebuked the Pharisees for the absurd absurd logic that flies in the face of truism regarding a kingdom divided against itself. And the second thing we said was for their failure to see their own hypocrisy in their accusation. So verse 28 is where we're at. The third argument. Jesus issues a third and final argument to reveal what should be the only real possibility of his true identity and source of power. Now, it's important to remember those two questions I mentioned to keep in mind. Anybody know what it is? Who is this man? Who is this man? What does his power come from? Basically, yes. And what is the extent and the source of his power? Who is this man and what is the extent and source of his power? Verse 28 reads, But if I, by the Spirit of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now Jesus raises a direct contrast to the previous argument, bringing up the possibility that if his power is not by Beelzebul, then one must then consider his power from the Spirit of God. Here, Jesus is emphasizing his work and his power. Power alone that resides in the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. If he casts out demons, if he casts out demons, that was never disputed, ever. Remember I said it was, it was always verifiable. It was always by what power does he do these miraculous works? If not by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons, then the only logical conclusion could be by the Spirit of God. I say logical because as we have earlier covered the background of the Jewish people and their expectation of the Messiah, the son of David, and the kingdom that is to be ushered in, this is the only conclusion they could only make. It was either God or Satan. Read it with me again. But if I, by the Spirit of God, this man can't be the son of David, can he? Who else could he be? There is further implication revealed here. He says, if the son of David, then the kingdom is with him. It all joins together. A king must have a kingdom. So the last line of verse 28 says, Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Not to be confused 
uh, not to be confused that the millennial kingdom has begun when Christ in Revelation will return and reign a thousand years. But Jesus here employed the phrase kingdom of God, and in many of your translations it will say kingdom of heaven, to indicate that the perfect order of things which he was about to establish in which all those of every nation, not just Jews, who should believe in him were to be gathered together in one society, dedicated and intimately united to God and made partakers of eternal salvation. And I, the commentary I read earlier continued here, and it said this kingdom is spoke of now has already begun and is actually present inasmuch as its foundations have already been laid by Christ and its benefit, benefits realized among those that believe in him. Most often the kingdom of heaven is spoken of as a future blessing since its consummate establishment is to be looked for on Christ's solemn return from the skies, the dead being called to life again, the ills and wrongs which burden the present state of things done away, and the powers hostile to God being vanquished. Now listen to these verses from the, the passage, The Truth Will Make You Free. This is from John 10, 37-38. Jesus speaking, He says, If I... If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. You know, you would think the miracles in themselves would be enough evidence for anyone to believe. Yet many stumbled still. You know, apart from God, we are all like the demon-possessed man in the sense we are controlled by Satan, blind to the gospel truth, and we don't speak from a mind that has been made right by the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus provides a final word in verse 29 in the form of a parable to draw a comparison to what the people saw with what he was telling them. Let's walk through the parable to see if we see rightly. Verse 29. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. So he begins with the word or. This is the transitional word that indicates the comparison is coming from the, with the previous statement. If you just read verse 29 without applying any spiritual meaning, it's easy to see the simple logic playing out in the illustration. You can, you can practically see it. Uh, think back to my story from the beginning. What are the aspects of that crime that caused it to fail? What do you think? If you're going to tie a guy up, Get some rope. The phone cord wasn't enough. Oh. Ouch. 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 Hopefully it's still working. <laughs> right. So binding the strong man was the important part, right? It wasn't done. Huh? Take away all the guns. Yeah. We don't know if they got them from inside the house or what. Use the gun against its owner. Yeah, well, that's what he said. Oh, well, he said take it. Is it? <laughs> uh, they're different. 
Close enough. You were close to the same. Well, I mean, in any case, you're all right. I mean, they ended up, they didn't get anything that they went in there for, right? I mean, a, a shot. I mean, a wound that forever would probably be with the guy. They're lucky to be alive, basically. I mean, this is the literal meaning of the text, right? This is what we call literal meaning. Even an unbeliever can understand this point. However, Jesus' parables carry a deeper meaning. We said this earlier about parables. So pay close attention. The parable is in a question format. And what should be the focus often gets overlooked. It reads, or how can anyone? Figuratively, the comparison in the parable is intended to draw an implication of spiritual matters and spiritual forces. Jesus has in mind here spiritual kingdoms against spiritual kingdoms. Supreme spiritual good against supreme spiritual evil. So to explain the parable, the strong man's house is reference to Satan and the person he is controlling or possessing. The person's body, his soul, is the house. But by Satan's controlling power, this belongs to him. And do you think that this man has the power to overtake Satan and his demons? Not just anyone can walk in and bind Satan. Humanly not possible. Satan's power is less than God's, but more than ours, much more. The demon-possessed man is bound to evil with no escape, hopeless in his existence and his future. It, it, it begs the question, can anyone enter this house and bind the strong man? I think we know the answer. No. Not humanly speaking. But the parable identifies someone, one that's not just anyone. Anyone in the Greek translation alludes to a certain one. It's singular. This one. This man. Jesus is this man. Jesus is the only one able to enter the strong man's house, bind him, and carry off all his property. And that property happens to be the souls of men. Jesus is the only one able to bind Satan and all his demons and cast them out of your house, removing their control on your life, and can put his spirit, the Holy Spirit, in you that you are no longer bound and controlled by the kingdom of darkness, but Jesus brings the captives into the kingdom of his marvelous light. And at the end of your time, and at the end of these days that we live in, only one kingdom is going to be standing. And if you never have put your trust in Jesus Christ, let me urge you tonight to not wait another day. I don't know where... Some of you may be in that. But you see, we are all, in a sense, like the demon-possessed man. Without Christ in us, we are under the control of Satan. We are blind, spiritually speaking, on our way down a road leading to eternal hell, eternal separation from God because we walk in our sins. We are mute when it comes to speaking of the goodness of God 
We're in need of this Jesus, the Savior, to come and cast out Satan from our lives and restore us by faith. You can do this by confessing your sins and knowing that you deserve the wrath reserved for the wicked and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Isaiah 55, 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Romans 10, 9 tells us how one can do that. He says that if we confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So I beg you tonight on, on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. If you're in that place tonight, I ask you to consider that. This man, Jesus Christ, is the strong man. Well, we're almost done. In closing, there is one last implication of this parable of verse 29. You know, this verse is also a truism. As we said, that has a literal, clear meaning. But the deeper spiritual meaning doesn't escape us. There within this parable that Jesus is speaking contains further hope. A foretaste of deliverance. Revelations 20 Verses 1-10, through 10, John, as he wrote what Jesus revealed to him in the, when he wrote Revelation, he said this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven and having hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and he shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Verse 7 said, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, and to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. And it says, They went up on the breadth of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And it said, Fire came down from God out of heaven, and it devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. And it says they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan's days are numbered. And eternity is on our side. To wrap up, I had a couple of concluding thoughts maybe for you. You know, Matthew is a book, as we said earlier, that points us to think of who is Jesus, who Jesus is, our King. So, first thought is to remember and be thankful. Remember and be thankful. He alone has the power to overthrow Satan and his minions. And he's already done that at the cross, rendering them powerless for anyone who trusts in him. The second thing I would say would be if you have believed in him, then proclaim his goodness to a lost world 
as Matthew has done so excellently. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for this night. We thank You for for Jesus, for Christ, who has overthrown Satan already on the cross. Lord, He took on our sin. You died for us. And when You rose from the dead, things were over. Things were finished. And Satan knew it. So Father, we thank You for that. I pray for those here that if they've not put their trust in You, Lord, tonight would be a night that they begin to have that conversation. Thank You for Your Word. It's clear. It's even for us when You've given us the Holy Spirit can, can become more logical. But those that don't have You, they can't see it rightly. We thank You again tonight, Lord. I pray You would bless the rest of our evening. In Christ's name, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Thank you, Thank you. All right, guys, hope you guys were encouraged as I was by the word.